Blutwurst. That's what my dad called it. His parents immigrated here from Austria, and it was a favorite food of theirs, and it was a favorite food of my dad's, though my mom seldom let him cook it. Blutwurst is blood sausage. Blood sausage is made of pig fat and pig blood and barley and lots of black pepper. To me, it tasted terrible. And it smelled even worse than it tasted. But my dad, my dad grew up on this stuff. He loved it. Sinclair Ferguson, the Scottish author, he tells a story about a brief conversation that he had with a few people outside of his church after he preached a sermon. When they saw him after service, they turned to him and asked, can Christians eat black pudding? And black pudding is the Scottish version of blutwurst. It's basically blood sausage. And they asked him that because of a verse in Genesis, a couple verses, but one in Genesis chapter 9, verse 4, which reads, You shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. So I think Dr. Ferguson went on to explain to them that Scripture did not, not that Scripture nor any other Scripture, prohibit a, a Christian from eating black pudding. To eat or not to eat, it was a matter of Christian liberty. It wasn't commended in Scripture, but it also wasn't condemned in Scripture. Well, the Corinthians had a similar issue. The Corinthians also had a food that they were uncertain about, and so they wrote Paul about it. And today we begin the section in which Paul is going to give them an answer. He will tell them who is right, doctrinally right, that is, within the first six verses. It won't take long for Paul to tell them who is doctrinally right, but then he will go on for three chapters. So from chapter 8, verse 1, all the way through chapter 11, verse 1, and the reason he does that, you can imagine, is because there's a much deeper issue. There's something more important at stake. It turns out that in Corinth, those who were doctrinally right were attitudinally wrong. So they had the right doctrine, but they had the wrong attitude. And so Paul writes to confront everyone. It was important that they understand what the Bible actually teaches on a subject, but it was even more important to Paul that they relate to one another in a loving way. Now that is something we need to hear today. Our issues are different than the specific issues that the Corinthians were struggling with. But the deeper concern that Paul had for them would be, I'm convinced, the concern that Paul would have for us. We have our own issues. We have areas of Christian liberty where we may hold different convictions and often we struggle to love one another across those disagreements. Alcohol. Education, music, vaccinations, modest clothing, insurance, TV, electronics, social media, the list goes on. We have personal convictions. Some are informed by the Bible. Some of them are not informed the Bible. We have consciences at work. And my conscience may convict me one way. He may convict you another way. One thinks it's okay to drink alcohol. The other does not think it's okay to drink alcohol. 
One thinks your children must be homeschooled. The other says, I would never homeschool my children. One says, you must vaccinate your kids. The other says, there's no way I'm vaccinating my kids. Is TV permissible for Christians? Is it not? Should we have a TV? How much TV can we watch? No, no TV in the house. What about electronics? What about social media? That clothing is modest. No way that clothing is not modest. Most of these things are things that the Bible does not speak specifically to as specifically as we wish it did. And so we end up having disagreements, which is fine, which is okay. What is important to Paul, most important, is that we relate to one another across those disagreements in a loving way. And so Paul's words are as timely for us and as important for us as they were for the Corinthians. So as we move forward, let's remember together what this time is. Pastor Greg reminded us, but we are sitting under the preaching of God's Word. I know I'm standing, but I'm sitting under this preaching as well. I sat under this preaching all week, and I'll sit under it again right now. And it is through the preaching of God's Word that God's presence is here among us in a unique way, in a special way. This, the preaching of God's Word, is one of, if not the, most important ways that the God of the universe gets His truth in our heads and into our hearts. So, will you please bow your heads with me. Father in heaven, as we listen to this sermon, fill our minds with truth, fill our hearts with affections, and move our wills to love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. If you are using one of our church Bibles, you'll find today's text on, on page 899. If you're able, I encourage you to put your Bible in your lap, your phone in your pocket. Verse 1. Verse 1 of chapter 8 begins with the words, Now concerning, which signals to us that Paul is turning his attention to another topic about which the Corinthians had written him. Paul first used that phrase, now concerning, at the beginning of chapter 7 when he said, now concerning the matters about which you wrote. And he'll use that phrase five more times throughout this letter as he addresses different topics about which the Corinthians had written him. And here's the new topic, food offered to idols or food sacrificed to idols. I am guessing that that is not an issue that keeps many of you awake at night. But it was, believe it or not, it was a hot topic in Corinth, one that I suspect was contributing to the division within that church. So let me try and take us back to Corinth so that we understand what this is, what was going on. There were many temples in that city, many temples, each for the worship of a different Greek god. And a common worship practice in those temples was the sacrificing of animals. The sacrificing of animals in order to placate or calm down an angry or unhappy God. But when those sacrifices were made, the entire animal would not be burned. And so whatever meat was left, whatever part of the animal was left, it would be sold. Some of it would be sold to families to eat in their homes. And some of it would be sold and eaten right there at the temple in banqueting halls or dining halls. So here's what was happening. Some of these Corinthians, right, were becoming Christians. And so, of course, they stopped worshiping at these temples and of course, they stopped offering animals as sacrifices, but not all of them, some of them, 
but not all of them stopped buying and eating the meat. So, for example, imagine a young woman. She was married and had two kids. She and her husband had recently become Christians, so they stopped worshiping at the temple. They stopped offering animals to idols, but they still needed to eat. So once a week, she would go down into town, and she would have two options when it came to buying meat. She could go to the Agora or the marketplace, which was very expensive, or she could buy meat at the back door of the temple. Same quality of meat, but for far less money. So buy it and eat it, or not buy it and eat it. That was the question they were wrestling with. Okay to buy that meat? Okay to eat that meat? Or is it not okay to buy it? Is it not okay to eat it? And so you had two sides. For some Corinthians, it was not a problem. They were saying it's no big deal. It's not like there's an actual God that meat was offered to. There, there is no rule in the Bible that prohibits eating this meat. You're being legalistic. This is stupid. Get over it. Lighten up. But for others, it was a problem. Buying and eating that meat from the temple would remind them of their former life. It would provoke shame and guilt. It felt wrong to them. How could they enter that place again? How could they spend their money there? Wouldn't spending their money there be supporting their idolatry? They didn't want to give the impression to others who may see them go in and out. They didn't want to give them the impression that they endorsed or accepted the practice of animal sacrifice. And then what about the meat itself? It had been offered up to a pagan god. So again, on one side, you had lighten up. It's no big deal. And on the other side, you had tighten up. How can you call yourself a Christian and walk into that pagan temple and give them that money? Don't you know Target has a liberal agenda? How can you shop there? How could you give them your money? You're endorsing them. You're accepting what they do. And some moms, some Christian moms are like, I don't care. They have a Starbucks in that store. I can pull my cart up to the Starbucks with cake pops for the screaming children and coffee for mom. I can go to the store. I can get my groceries. I can get some clothes. I see a glass llama that would make a great centerpiece. And then I can pull up to Starbucks. And they give me a drink. So I don't, I don't really care what their political thoughts or agendas are. And then you have others saying, I only give my money to Chick-fil-A and Hobby Lobby. <laughs> and that's it. Honey, groceries, everything. We got to make it work. Chick-fil-A and Hobby Lobby and everything else is burning in hell. So who's right there? So you get the idea. That's sort of what was going on. So Paul's got a lot to say in response. Again, for three chapters. But our verses today. Just the first six verses of chapter 8. Paul is simply laying a foundation for everything else that he's going to say on the subject. He's laying the foundation here. This foundation will be the key to their church and the church resolving these kinds of issues. So verse 1, the first part, verse 1a. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess 
knowledge. You see those quotation marks? This is one of the reasons it's important to have your Bible out in front of you. There's quotation marks there. Those are not part of the original Greek. Those are editorial suggestions to show us that Paul is quoting the Corinthians here. They claimed to possess a certain knowledge that released them to eat meat offered to idols. And if we want to know what bit of knowledge that was, we just have to skip down and read verse 4. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know, what did they know? That an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. And now look, this is not a quote. This is Paul. He's agreeing with that. 4, verse 5, Although there may be so-called gods in heaven on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we, we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So Paul agrees with their theology. That knowledge that they possessed was right. There is only one true God. All these other gods are fictional. These gods and these temples, they are made up. They may have idols made of these gods with eyes and ears and mouths, but they do not see, they do not hear, and they do not speak. These new Christians had probably read Psalm 115, 4 through 7. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. So they possessed this knowledge, and so they concluded, rightly, it is permissible to buy and eat this meat that had been offered to idols. Their thinking on the issue, it's right. They possessed good knowledge. It was good knowledge, which is why the effect this knowledge had on them is somewhat surprising. This wasn't bad knowledge. It was good knowledge. But look at the effect it had. Let's read the second half of verse 1. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. The knowledge was good, but its effect was bad. The knowledge was right, but its effect was wrong. Paul does not, will not correct their beliefs on this issue, but he will correct their behavior. The orthodoxy is solid. The orthopraxy is dead wrong. There is more to the Christian life than sound doctrine. Now, the Christian life does not exist and is nothing apart from sound doctrine, but there is so much more to the Christian life than sound doctrine. We need, we must get more than our doctrine straight. The Greek word translated puffs up is physio. It means conceited. It means to be filled with pride. It means looking down on others. Paul used this same word earlier in chapter 4, verse 6, where he wrote that none of you may be puffed up. And what happened when they were puffed up? In favor of one against another, looking down on one another. So this knowledge, Paul writes, it is puffing you up rather than building others up. 
You see the contrast in that verse. This knowledge is puffing you up rather than building others up. This knowledge, he says, puffs up. And what's the contrast? But love builds up. So here's what was happening. For these Corinthians, this knowledge was leading to pride that puffed up and destroyed. This knowledge was leading to pride that puffed themselves up and it destroyed others. And destroyed is not an exaggeration. Look down at verse 11. By your knowledge, this weak person is, what's the word? Destroyed. By your good knowledge, right knowledge, sound doctrine, this weak person is destroyed. As we read on in weeks to come, it will be very clear. They were not loving and building up the church. Their knowledge was leading them to callously exercise a liberty that was wounding, verse 7. It was stumbling, verse 9, and even destroying, verse 11, other Christians, which at that point meant they were, verse 12, in sin, not just against those other Christians, but against the Lord Jesus Christ, verse 12. So think about that. That is quite a thought. Their knowledge was being used to probably unintentionally defile and destroy other Christians. Their sound doctrine was being used to defile and destroy fellow Christians. Causing them to look down on them, to be condescending. Not patiently teaching them, but disregarding their conscience and their convictions. So let me just put that all another way. In verse 1, Paul is pointing out that some of these Corinthians had full heads but empty hearts. And that was the problem. They had full heads but empty hearts. So in verse 2, Paul begins his correction. He's going to say what they need to hear those who are proud. Verse 2, if anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. That is a good thing to say to someone who is puffed up with pride. He's saying to those of you puffed up with knowledge, you actually have a lot to learn. I bet that surprised them. I bet the tables were being turned in a way that they did not expect. They write to Paul and ask him the question, so can we buy and eat the meat or not? Because we have Scripture and they don't. They're pretty confident of how Paul is going to answer the question. But, but he doesn't look to those who don't think it's okay to buy and eat the meat and say, hey, Psalm 115, these guys are right, you're wrong. Quit making a big deal over it. He turns the table, doesn't he? And he turns towards those who, who have this knowledge. His main concern, Paul's main concern, is not the group who lacks knowledge, but the group who possesses knowledge. And to them, he says, you do not yet know as you ought to know. What do you bet? That's exactly what they were saying to the others. You do not yet know as you ought to know. We're doing a Bible study at my house on why I'm right and you're wrong. And you should come over. I've got all kinds of verses I can read to you about how there's only one true God. These idols aren't really anything, so it's just a funny show they're doing there. It doesn't contaminate the meat. You're free to eat it. So come on over. Let me explain to you why I'm right and you're wrong. You do not yet know as you ought to know. And Paul says, no, you, you who possess this knowledge, 
you do not yet know as you ought to know. It's meant to humble these believers. It's the opposite of puffed up. If you're puffed up with knowledge and you're not humbled by your knowledge, you have a lot to learn. That's what Paul is saying. If the knowledge you have puffs you up instead of humbling you, then you have a lot to learn. Paul wrote something similar in his first letter to Timothy when he said, He is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. To be puffed up with conceit at the end of the day is to understand nothing. W.K. writes, Knowledge is proud that it has learned so much. Wisdom is humble that it knows no more. A humbling word in verse 2. And now some real help he gives them in verse 3. It's not obvious. But we'll talk about it. He humbles them here in verse 3 when he writes, But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Now that is not what you expect Paul to say based on the structure of these sentences. And this may not be obvious. I think it would have been more clear to them, but you'll have to look to see this. In the verse before, verse 2, Paul wrote, If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. So in accordance with that structure, you expect him to say in this verse, but if anyone knows as he ought to know, he is known by God. That's what you expect him to say. That's the grammatical structure. That's the format here. But he doesn't. Instead of saying... If anyone knows as he ought to know, he says, if anyone loves God. Let me say that again. Instead of saying, if anyone knows as he ought to know, he substitutes knowing as you ought to know with loving God. And Paul does that because it's the same thing. Knowing as you ought to know is loving God. Loving God is out of knowing as you ought to know. Those who love God, love God because they know as they ought to know. Those who know as they ought to know, love God. In other words, right knowing loves God. Right knowledge leads to loving God. In other words, here is what you don't know yet, Paul is saying to the Corinthians. Here is what you don't know yet. Your knowledge is for loving God and loving others and building up the church. That is what your knowledge is for. It's not for winning an argument. It's not for browbeating. It's not for standing on your soapbox. It's not for sitting on your high horse. It's not for looking down on those around you. It's not for puffing yourself up. That is not what your knowledge is for. Your knowledge is for loving God. Your knowledge is for loving others. When you love God, Christians, when you love others, the church is built up. And here's the most humbling statement of all. Remember, keep in mind, Paul is correcting pride here. He has already told those boasting in knowledge that they have a lot to learn. That's humbling. Then he tells them, those who are unloving, that true knowledge leads to loving God and others. In other words, maybe you don't have true knowledge yet. And now, he tells them where this knowledge comes from. 
He tells them where this love for God comes from. Verse 3. If anyone loves God, he is known by God. Now literally, literally this says, if anyone loves God, he has been known by God. If you love God, this would be true for any of you here today who love God. You have true affection for God in your heart. You love God. You love God because, past tense, you have been known by God. So God knew you and God's knowing you preceded your loving God. That's what Paul is saying here in verse 3. This is not God knowing about you. This is God knowing you on a loving and personal level. That's what the Bible speaks about here and other places when it talks about God's foreknowledge of those whom He would save. It's not a foreknowledge that just knows what's going to happen or knows about you or knows what color hair you were going to have and what you were going to do last Tuesday. It's not just that kind of foreknowledge about facts. It's the knowledge that is like, I know my family. I know my wife. I know my children. I know many of you on a deep and personal level. And before you ever loved God, before that, you had been known by God. In other words, you love God because God first loved you. We can't get that backwards. If you love God, this is what Paul is saying, if you love God, it's because God first loved you. 1 John 4.19, we love because He first loved us. To those who love God, you love God because you have been known by God. You did not first love God and then He loved you. You did not choose God, God chose you. Or to put that another way, you did choose God, but you chose God because God first chose you. God said, I have known you. I have set my affection on you from the beginning of time as we know it. I love you. I have set my affection upon you. And I will send my son to die for you. And then I will send my Holy Spirit to wake you up to what Jesus had done for you. And then I will put faith in you and you will love me and see and hear and believe and follow me all your days. And I will hold you and fasten you to myself and keep you secure to the day you die. And then I'll bring you into heaven, into my presence where you will be forever and ever. He got the ball rolling. He keeps the ball rolling forever. It wasn't that I said, God, I love you. And God said, hmm, me too. We didn't invite him. He invited us. We didn't choose him. He chose us. Now, why is Paul getting to this? Because there is nothing more humbling. And if you get this wrong, then it will lead to you taking knowledge at some point and puffing yourself up. But this truth takes the legs out from underneath pride. It should produce humility. Some say, no. If you believe that this is up to the election of God, or if you believe that this is up to God choosing, or if you believe that God first loves and then we love, then that's going to lead to pride, some would say. You'll look down on others. God chose me and not you. Well, that's impossible to have that kind of attitude. If you understand scriptures like Titus 3.5, which says, He saved us, yes, He saved us, not because of works done by me in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. 
In other words, I had nothing to do with it. I made no contribution. The contribution that I made to my salvation was sin. That's my part. That's my part. I sinned enough to need to be saved. And then God saved me. And not because of anything good in me, not because of anything good that I have done, but according to His own mercy. Now the opposite will and does lead to pride. God chose me because I chose Him, because I was more open, because I was more spiritual, because I said yes to the invitation and those other people did not, because I invited Him in my heart when others did not, because I said the prayer when others did not. But that is not true. It is because God, before you were even born, set His affection on you. He sent His Son Jesus to die for you. At some point, when you chose Christ, it was because He sent His Holy Spirit to open your eyes and ears to who He was and what He had done. And of course, you yelled out in faith. You believed. You loved Him. And you've been loving Him ever since as He has kept you because He said, I will lose none that the Father gives me. And then He says, I will bring to completion what I started. And you will be Christian in glory with Him one day. And that is not my work. And that is not your work. And it is not dependent on what I did, what I'm doing, or what I will do. It is, what was the title of Charles Spurgeon's book? It is all of grace. Now, if you think that that leads to puffing yourself up and pride, you're not hearing it. Which is why Paul says it. You're proud. You're puffed up. You possess some knowledge. Good for you. Sure, Paul's glad. Rather have him right doctrine than wrong doctrine. But what is he saying? Do you understand? The only reason you have this knowledge, the only reason you know, the only reason you love God is because God first loved you. And now you're going to look down on others who do not yet possess that same knowledge? That's his confrontation. You got full heads, Corinthians, but your hearts are empty. So here's what we're seeing in these foundational verses. Sometimes knowledge leads to pride that puffs up and destroys. Sometimes knowledge leads to humility that loves and builds up. It's the very opposite. I'll say that one more time. And we see this. I see it in my life. Maybe you've seen it in your life or in others, in your church, your family, sometimes knowledge leads to pride that puffs up and destroys. But sometimes knowledge leads to humility that loves and builds up. What is this foundational teaching here from Paul? Knowledge is for loving God. Loving others and building up His church. Knowledge is not for puffing yourself up. Knowledge is not for defiling or wounding or stumbling or destroying other Christians. The knowledge that God has given me is so that I may love Him and others more deeply, like with more affection in my heart. Not a have-to love, a get-to love, a want-to love. Not something I have to manufacture. But knowledge about who God is generates real, feeling, affectionate love for God in my heart. And love for His people. For those of you who have been Christians for any period of time, you've found that same thing surprising you and showing up in your heart. I, I know God. I know who He is. And I love Him. I love Him. And I love His people. We were sitting down this week and we were reading in our family about Pushan, this woman in India 
who became a Christian. Her husband ripped up her Bible, kicked her out of the home. We read about her, and I know, at least for me and my wife, we loved her. What is that? I don't, I don't know this woman. There's just a picture of her with, with these pages from this Bible. And before we even saw the picture, we loved her. We're feeling affection for her and concern for her. And wanting to pray for her and feeling sad for her. Because knowledge is for loving God and loving others. That the church might be built up. And not just an affection, but action. Serving one another, praying for one another. And all of that results in the building up of His church. Knowledge by itself puffs up, but love builds up. What is Paul looking for in that church and in our church? Full heads and full hearts. That's the expectation. Full heads and full hearts. That is what the Corinthians needed to understand in order to lovingly navigate through their differences. And it's exactly what we need to hear. In conclusion, to clarify, Paul was not after full hearts and empty heads. It's not like anti-knowledge. That's not the message here or anywhere in the Bible. See, that's what knowledge does. It puffs up every time. That's not what he's saying. Christianity is not anti-intellectual. Paul says, do you not know, ten times in this letter alone. There is knowledge Christians must have. And the reality is, you may not be a scholar, you may not be an academic, but every single one of you is a theologian. You're just a, a good theologian or a bad theologian. But you all believe things about who God is. And if I asked you, you could tell me. And if I told you to write them down, you could write them down. What would you be writing out? Your theology. What would you be talking about? Your theology. You don't have to be a scholar. You don't have to be an academic. You don't have to pick up these deep doctrines quickly. But you need to be a theologian. You need to know God. Without knowledge, you will have zero love for God. And the more knowledge you do have, the more potential there is that you will love God even more. But without knowledge, you'll be an empty furnace. You'll just be an empty furnace. And it does no good for anyone. It just sits there. And maybe it's pretty. And maybe you talk about what it could do if there were logs in it. Isaiah 5.13, therefore my people go into exile, why? For lack of knowledge. It's important. Acts 2.42, what were the Christians devoting themselves to? To the apostles' teaching, and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. And 2 Timothy 2.25 says that we're praying for others because God may perhaps grant them repentance. Repentance leading to what? A knowledge of the truth. So Paul was not after full hearts and empty heads. Heads need to be full too. Also, Paul was not after full heads and empty hearts. That was the problem in Corinth. It is not what knowledge is for. Knowledge is not for wounding, stumbling, or destroying others. It is for loving God and loving others, which builds up His church. Knowledge is a means to an end. It is a path to a destination. It is theology and doxology. It is explain in a sermon and exhort what we should do with it. Your goal in every sermon should be to understand and then apply. It is doctrine and then devotion. C.S. Lewis wrote, I tend to find the doctrinal books often more helpful in devotion than the devotional books. And I rather suspect that the same experience may await many others. I believe 
that many who find that nothing happens when they sit down or kneel down to a book of devotion would find that the heart sings unbidden while they are working their way through a tough bit of theology with a pipe in their teeth and a pencil in their hand. And John Piper has said, the theological mind exists to throw logs into the furnace of our affections for Christ. This is what knowledge is for. Knowledge is good. Right knowledge is crucial. It's important. But Paul was not after just right knowledge. He wasn't after full heads and empty hearts. So not full heads and empty hearts, not full hearts and empty heads, but rather full heads and full hearts. So let me ask you a couple questions. Does knowledge cause you to love God more? Is this how knowledge works in you? Does the knowledge you have, does it cause you to love God more? A second question, does knowledge cause you to love others more? Does the knowledge you have cause you to love God more? Does the knowledge you have cause you to love others more? It should. That is what knowledge is for. And if your amassing of knowledge is leading you into pride, is leading you into puffing yourself up, if it thrills you because you feel more equipped with ammunition in your next argument. There might be something wrong. You may be misunderstanding what your knowledge is for. If the more knowledge you amass causes you to look down on others... If it causes you to say things to yourself like, I can't believe they actually believe that. If it causes you to say things like, I would never do that. If it causes you to sound like a Pharisee praying and saying, thank God I'm not like that person. Then something is off. And you are misunderstanding and missing this foundation that Paul is trying to lay before he works out all the intricacies of Christian liberty. And that is that your knowledge is for loving God. Get sound doctrine. Get good theology so that you can know God more and love God more. So that you can love His people more. So that you can build up His church. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter how many arguments you can win. And what good is winning the argument if the person doesn't think that you love them? Let alone whether or not they're persuaded. Knowledge is for loving God and loving others. I suspect there's one more group here today. I know there's one more group here today. Some of you are here today, and I hope you won't take offense at this. You have empty heads and empty hearts. Your heads are empty in the sense that you don't know the gospel. You haven't heard the gospel which means good news. You don't know and believe the good news of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And so you can have all the knowledge in the world and you can have degree after degree after degree and you can have more common sense than anyone in the room. But if you do not possess that knowledge, your head is empty right now. All that knowledge is kindling for something else. It is not kindling for the love of God. And so I want to tell you that the good news is that Jesus came. He lived. He suffered. 
He died. He rose from the dead. In the place of sinners exactly like you. So that sinners exactly like you could be reconciled to God. Your sin, your disobedience, your wanting things your way and not God's way, your refusal to submit to Him, to worship Him, to honor Him, is what the Bible says is a rebellion and offense beyond anything else bad you could ever do. It is the worst thing you could do, and you've already done it. R.C. Sproul said it's like cosmic treason. God made you. He's cared for you. He's provided for you. He's loved you. And your back is turned to Him. When you don't love Him or honor Him or worship Him, you disobey Him, you disregard Him. And God does not just wink at that or sweep it under the carpet. He is a good God. He is a just God. And He will render judgment. And should you die and this life on this earth be over, you will face Him in judgment. And He will say to you, depart from me. I never knew you. You lived your life apart from me. You will live eternity apart from me. And it will be good and it will be right and it will be just. But right now I would say and plead with you, I don't want that to happen to you. I would rather you hear this gospel now, this good news now, and know that today may be the day of your salvation. If you would now believe this truth and turn from your sin and turn to God. Stop living your own way. Stop going your own way. Stop playing spiritual games with eternal consequences and come to grips with who you are and who God is. And to come to Him now. To love Him and to serve Him as best you can with the help of other Christians for as long as He gives you life. That you would have a head full of the gospel. Which is the thing of most importance. If you know no other doctrine, that's the essential doctrine. That is what you need. And I pray it would produce in you and the rest of us who struggle full hearts. Hearts filled and overflowing with love for God and for others.